Genesis 2, verse 18, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found and help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. And therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Amen. May God be pleased to bless and guide his word to your hearts again today. Well, having spent, I suppose, the, almost a year looking at the ethics of worship and church life, it is time to move on to the second sphere of the creation ordinances. Remember, I take you back to uh, this general subject of ethics. Ethics, principles of conduct, how do we know how we ought to live? Well, we've established, I trust by now, that we know how we ought to live because of what the Word of God says regarding these matters. We're looking at principles of conduct that are directly drawn from the Word of God, not subject to the opinions of the population, not subject to the thought of the majority, but rather subject only to the thought of God revealed in His Word. And that will of God that is perfect, good, acceptable in the language of Romans chapter 12. And so it is the word of God that must be our rule. And yet we see, of course, in God's intent in creation, we see, we see insights as to what is indeed the will of God. Remember we saw this, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, they open up the creation account. And we see things that God puts into place prior to the fall. And so we'll see there are some things in the Word of God that are effects of the fall. There are things that are brought in because of the fall. But foundational to mankind are the three spheres that are creation ordinances. The sphere of labor, um, by implication society, because we labor for the good of society. There is the sphere of worship, we studied that, um, by implication the sphere of the church. And in today, the sphere of family, given to us in the institution of marriage that is taught here in Genesis chapter 2. And so when we think about the ethics of family life again, we are reminding you that it is founded in God's work of creation. And so when you come to define marriage, you've got to go back to the creation account. Now it is my plan in this, uh, this subject of family ethics and the ethics of family life, to cover a great variety of issues. Things like marriage, of course, and family and children. And we'll cover some of the issues that relate to the LGBT movement. And we'll look at issues of things like abortion and in vitro fertilization. We'll look at subjects like care for the elderly. We'll consider a word that, what the Word of God teaches regarding assisted suicide, euthanasia. We'll look at grief. All of those things are all underneath the the concept of family life and marriage, family, and the ethics that God brings to these things. And so we're going to look at those 
various related topics, and we'll get there, I trust, uh, bit by bit. But it all comes under the creation ordinance. And so, of course, we understand, I think you all understand, that we live in a particular time in this generation where a clear grasp on the nature and purpose of marriage is vital in today's world that has so disregarded this institution of God's. Again, this perhaps is one of the most, uh, most clear examples of the danger of ethical or moral relativism. The idea that, well, there are different ideas, nobody's right, nobody's wrong. And if you start with that foundation, nobody's right and nobody's wrong, well then, what is absolute must be tolerance. So what becomes absolute. And so if there's no clearly defined ethical standard and you can have different opinions that are equally valid, well, then the only absolute must be tolerance. Of course, unless you say there is one absolute, and then there is no tolerance at all. But you get the idea that in the thinking of the world today, well, you, you do you. That's moral relativism, this idea that, well, you do whatever's comfortable to you, and well, I'm not going to judge you, I'm not going to question you. It is, of course, up to your own opinion. And so... Even though there may be profound ethical and moral differences and disagreements, we are encouraged to be tolerant. And thus the definition of marriage has been open for for discussion. Of course, from the Christian perspective, the Christian ethic has God's word as our standard. And yet even there we find a battle to face. Because the liberal agenda will say, well, the Bible's definitions of marriage, that's cultural it's based upon what was true uh, perhaps in, in the nation of Israel and then perhaps in the first century for the early church. There's a cultural impact in terms of the definitions of the Bible and well, we're a different culture. That's why you can buy to Genesis chapter 2 because it's a creation ordinance. It supersedes all cultures. It is God's will for mankind in all times, in all cultures, in every generation. It is the absolute, undeniable will of God. And so when you start here, you then see principles that derive from here and that are indeed the revelation of God's will. Now, we often think of the attack on marriage from those promoting the same-sex marriage agenda. And we say, oh, what a dreadful attack there is upon the concept of marriage. And yes, it is a very clear attack, a devilish attack, upon God's plan and purpose for mankind. No doubt about that at all. But however, we've got to understand the attacks are more subtle in other areas also. There is the attack in the, in the last decade or last uh, generation or so, where culturally it's become more and more acceptable and normal for couples to live together, even heterosexual couples. And so the church, in many ways, has almost come to accept that as being appropriate. Well, surely it's not same-sex, therefore perhaps that's not such a big deal. And this is another subtle attack upon God's institution of marriage. And we'll, we'll get to some of that even today, perhaps. You think of the church. You think of how an even, even good, reformed, evangelical churches, marriage is undervalued. It is poorly practiced. It is joked about, all sort of frivolity regarding the institution of marriage, and in some ways the spirit of the age is crept into the church. And we've embraced a worldly mindset 
as to what is one of God's creation ordinances, an institution of great dignity and value and honor in the sight of God. And so we should not just look for attacks outside. We've also got to be very, very mindful and aware of the attacks that exist within, within the Church of Christ. I was, I was flying back on Friday. I was reading a book, uh, The Pastor in the Modern World, some of the issues regarding secularism in the church. And I came across this quote, and I thought I'd share it with you now. It this, Among other factors, contributing to the extraordinary growth of the church in the first few centuries is the emphasis on family and compassion among Christian values less in evidence in the culture of ancient Rome. This included respect for women and protection of infants. And so the book's dealing with the issue of secularism and how the secular world is impacting the church. And again, just by the way, I'm not actually advocating the book. There are things I wasn't so happy about in the book, but that's neither here nor there. The issue right now is that here you have a major, major evidence of Christian growth in that it was countercultural. And the same can be true today. Because I believe with all of my heart that as the world more and more slips in the chaos regarding marriage and the family, the church has the potential to stand as a city on the hill and to demonstrate very clearly this is God's good and perfect will. And as, a, as long as you continue down this slippery slope to chaos, eventually it'll be very, very clear this doesn't work. It ruins society. It doesn't help the furtherance of support for the elderly, and you see that. Again, some of the countries that are pushing an agenda of, of smaller families, they now cannot support their advanced aged people. You think of China. And the one-child policy is bringing about chaos and confusion because they've undermined God's ethical standard. And do you think this society will progress given the chaos of today? Is it going to progress and be healthy in future generations? No, it's not. And so the church... We have an opportunity to stand for the truth of God and say, this is God's good will. And we neglect it to our peril and to our ruin. And so that's why I think we should take some time uh, to consider this very, very carefully and be very clear as to what God teaches regarding these things. So let's begin with the institution of marriage. And clearly that is a divine institution. That's the point here. Marriage is instituted by God. We didn't make it up. That's the point. It was God's plan and God's purpose for mankind, and he is the one who institutes marriage. Now, in Genesis chapter 2, you see the account of the creation of Eve, taken from Adam's rib. And Adam, of course, then gives his testimony. She's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. And we'll come back to some of these things today. I'm just laying some foundational uh, principles. But you'll then see what Moses does as, as he writes the Pentateuch. You'll see what happens in verse number 24. There is therefore a commentary. So therefore, verse 24, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother. Now, if you're reading that carefully, you're going to recognize well, Adam's father, in the very real senses, is God himself. He's not leaving God. And so the concept of leaving father and mother is derivative from this principle. God gives man a woman, thereby establishing what's going to happen in future generations, where a man raised in a home will then leave that home and build a new home. Leaving father and mother, taking a woman for his wife, and it's marriage instituted in creation as God gives Adam, Eve, to be his wife. 
You see that very clearly, don't you? Like verse 24 makes no sense if it's only a commentary on Adam. It's a commentary for the ages. It's a commentary for every generation from henceforth and furthermore forever, ever until the end of time. This is what is to be the case. And so you now go across to Matthew 19. And of course you understand here that we are seeing Christ himself authenticating and, if you like, rubber stamping the words of the Pentateuch. Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12, there is a discussion uh, with the Lord regarding uh, marriage arising from the Pharisees' question. Verse number 3, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Well, we'll, we'll come. We're going to deal with the subject again. I've done of the poverty before. We'll look at some uh, degree of the subject of divorce in the future. That's not the point for uh, today. But you have the question being asked, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? But in the course of the Lord's answer, he then says in verse number four, have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this cause... Shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. What you see here again is that the Lord himself says, Genesis 2 is real and true. It's not allegory, it's not a metaphor for life. These are describing real events. God made them male and female and then Christ himself confirms the authority of Genesis 2, 24. In the terms of marriage, a man shall leave father and mother and cleave to his wife. Now, what you see also in the light of the Lord's words here, and we're going to come to this, that this is a legal agreement. That what you see in Genesis chapter 2 is then explained and applied by Christ as to requiring a legal dissolution, a putting away. And again, we're going to discuss how that and whether it's appropriate and what it all means. But you're seeing here, this is more than simply two people deciding to live together. There's a public consent and a legal declaration and agreement to come together between man and wife. Now, how that works out practically may well have cultural ramifications. But the, the concept and the essence is, this is a legal agreement where a man sets up a new home with his wife. And so if we think about the institution, I ask the question again, is this open for discussion? No. Who are you going to debate? This is God's institution, so therefore the only person you're debating is God. Uh, I come back to how this uh, the attacks that come against marriage, you and I well know that this is an attack against the very authority of God. This is God's idea. We don't like God in our world, and therefore we'll attack God, and we'll do so in every sense and every way. It is the devil again asking the same question as he does in all ages, hath God said? Has God said, this is God's will for mankind? Yes, God said it. That settles it. Forget that I believe it, but God said it. That settles it. So, if that is the case, if it is God's institution, then the next thing you must understand is that we must embrace God's definition. For that, I want to turn you to Malachi chapter 2. Now, those of you who have ever been 
in a, in a place where I've conducted a wedding will know that I lean heavily upon this text when it comes to, uh, to marriages. I think it's a very important text to really help us come up with a, a very convenient definition. Uh, confession time, this definition is not mine. Uh, I heard it from somebody probably, well, oh, mid to late 90s, it's a few years ago now, uh, and I've stuck with it ever since. I knew this definition before I was married, and I'm thankful for that. I'm very thankful that this was taught to me when I was still in my late teens, early 20s. And it is derived, of course, from Malachi chapter 2, verse 14. Yet you say, Wherefore, because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against, thou hast, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet she is thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. Context here is the people of God are guilty of spiritual adultery against the Lord, but they're also part of that is they're ruining the very institution of God's marriage, or the institution that God has put in of Christian or godly marriage. But the terms of verse 14 are helpful because they, they undergird a couple of things. That marriage is a covenant. It's a covenant. It's a covenant between companions. So today I want to think a little bit about this concept of marriage as a covenant. Now here we've got to be clear regarding our biblical understanding of covenant. We can dumb down marriage by dumbing down the biblical nature of covenant. Covenant in Bible times was more than an agreement. It was more than a handshake. You know, in some of the cultures, you see it back in Genesis when Abraham walks through the divided animals. These were binding obligations that in some cases, if the obligation was broken, it was to lead to the death of the other party. That was the sense of the animals were divided. And of course, God and Abraham walked through the midst in that, in that account. But it is a binding, oath-bound promise. We're going to be looking tonight at God's covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. And again, you will see, I trust, when you're here to hear the word of God tonight, you will see the repetition of the sense of oath, solemnity in the covenant. You see, turn across to Hebrews chapter 6, please. So we're just drawing this from Malachi to this concept of covenant. And in Hebrews chapter 6, you do have, you have the account given by the writer of Hebrews regarding the covenant with Abraham. Verse 13, for when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself. Verse 17, for in God willingly more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. Okay, so you see this is God's promise to Abraham. It is referred to as a covenant. And the covenant is described by he in Hebrews chapter 6 as requiring the giving and receiving of an oath. And of course, speaking of marriage, the covenant is most appropriate. Because when we come to think of the gospel, marriage is used to illustrate Christ's relationship with his church. And Christ relates to his church in covenant. And so if Christ and his church is to 
be used as a means to help us understand marriage, well, then we're seeing that that itself is covenantal. Christ loved the church. We speak of a mystery. Christ and the church, Ephesians chapter 5. We saw even recently the marriage supper of the Lamb. Christ, the groom, the church, the bride. We see all this in redemptive revelation. And so the relationship in marriage is covenantal. See, marriage union Please understand this is not primarily physical, but it's primarily covenantal. Marriage is a covenant that leads to union, not union leading to covenant. And so this idea of, I don't know if you use the term here, common law marriage, is an attack upon God's institution of marriage. And, and it, may be, it may be appropriate legally for the government to recognize, well, they've been living together for 20 years, we'll, we'll now review them as being married, but they're not married in God's definition of marriage. It doesn't matter whether they've been living together for, for 20 or 30 years. There is not this oath-bound obligation that we see in God's institution of marriage. And so that's why I say, well, yes, the same-sex marriage agenda attacks marriage, but so do some of these other concepts in our world today. But I'm really committed. I've been monogamous for all of these years. What difference is there between your marriage and my marriage? I so said, an oath. That's the difference. A public declaration of an oath. Because that is God's will for marriage. And I believe that people are not married without making a public covenant. And I think less is fornication. So with that in mind, what are some of the implications of this when it comes to the practicalities of this? And again, by the way, I just bought a picture. That's not an incidental fact either. Because in our culture, and this is a cultural thing, we sign our name to indicate the oath-bound nature of our promise. I don't think it's absolutely necessary verbal agreement between a couple in a public sense has the binding nature of an oath, whether your name's signed or not. But the signature is in part a reflection of the solemnity of the oath that has been given between a husband and a wife. And so when you think about this issue, we are thinking about some of these matters. And first of all, about the solemnity of this situation. I don't know whether you'd enter into some sort of financial agreement without taking it very seriously. Maybe you're going to buy a house. You know, you need to take a mortgage out. What you're doing there, you're entering into a covenant with the lender. And you're looking at, I don't know how much you're going to pay a month. I'm not going to make up numbers. But you've got this idea of a a very, very serious commitment. And you're going to realize this is a solemn thing. When I sign my name... At this point, this agreement, I'm entering a very solemn engagement. And I must not enter it lightly, if I can borrow the language of the old marriage vows. Not carelessly, not lightly. In the Scottish churches, they would often talk about the solemnizing of marriage. You might get that in a sign outside a church, one of the Church of Scotland buildings in Scotland. They recognize the solemnity of the marriage union. And so, I think for young people here and here who may listen, again, I want to encourage you, do not enter into marriage lightly. But also do not avoid it because it is solemn. 
Again, one of the spirits of the age that we live in is that young people are scared. They're scared to make serious commitments and serious agreements. And they run scared of, of any sort of financial or mortal obligations. You know, this is God's will. And you know the wonderful hope in the gospel is that when believers seek to do the will of God, God gives them the grace to obey the commands. And so you think, oh, this is terrifying. How can I possibly commit myself to one woman or one man for life? It's absolutely terrifying. Now, if you feel that in one sense, that's not the worst thing to feel. But then you've got to get to God and grace and say, Lord, I need grace to do this properly. It's a solemn and serious engagement. And may God help me to do it for his glory. The solemnity of the covenant. There's also, and I keep losing this, in the second place, yeah, I'm losing track of this slide. Where's it going? There we go. The security. Technology. The security of this engagement. One of the things, again, that you find in young people as they would engage in discussions regarding marriage. What if they leave me? The spirit of the age is such the no-fault divorce concept. And that it has led to this idea that nobody feels very secure even in their marriage. You know, when we begin with this understanding of covenant, we are making a relationship that is secure. It is a binding covenant. Again, I think of the relationship of Christ and His church. Though we, His church, feel Him, Christ never feels us. Though we as church uh, let him down in so many ways and we, we disappoint and even grieve. Yet Christ is absolutely wholeheartedly committed to the covenant and he will never break covenant with his church. And so this idea of security is key. Now the ground of that security for us as it is for Christ is love. But love that is not only emotional but love that is, we choose the term, volitional that's the term we use. So emotional, that, listen, folks, if that, that ought to be present. We offend Christ if we don't love Christ with our emotions. He's worthy of our delight. And delight is loving Christ emotionally. And it is a gross offense to your spouse if you say, well, I love you with my will, but not with my emotions. However, at times the emotions are strongly tested. And there are occasions where you struggle to go forward emotionally. And at such a time, you go back to the decision, the security. This is a volitional love. And husbands are commanded to love their wives. And commands require the use of the will. A decision, no matter what, I'm going to love my wife. There are times that some people enter marriage quickly, hurriedly. And they don't really get a fuller picture of their spouse. And then over time they realize there are things in my spouse that I don't like. What do I do in such a time? They have, they have particular habits and they have they've some personality traits that I didn't see in advance. And I'm not sure I, I totally like that. Well, you remember you entered into a covenant, a decision, an act of the will. And so whenever I conduct weddings, I don't use the I do, I use the I will. The sense of I will keep this vow. 
By an act of God and by His grace, I will do what's right in God's sight. This is a matter of security grounded in true love. And then finally, for now, you have the issue of the sanctity. The sanctity of this. I forget that. The third sanctity. Okay. The sanctity of this. This is God's institution. And the covenant is made in God's presence. It doesn't have to be in a church. But God sees all things. And God oversees. And when believers enter into public covenant, God is witness. And so you turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, verse number 4. And this will close. Marriage is honorable in all. And the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. The sanctity of the marriage and the marital union is so clearly explained. This is God's good and perfect will. It is practiced properly, a holy institution. And thereby, it can be used for our sanctification. Husbands, love your wives. Christ loved the church and sanctifies it. And so marriage is used in God's hands to make us more like Christ. Not only that we would display Christ and his church to the world, but to make us more like Christ through the blessing of a godly marriage. And so you see how important, when you get back to definition, if definition is accurate, so many practical things flow out of that. You know, if this is a solemn and a secure and a sanctified thing, There'll be no third party in the marriage. Third party, whether it be a natural individual with an inappropriate friendship, or whether it be through the use of some technological matter, whether it be a cell phone or a computer or something else, whereby there are perhaps multiple third parties brought into the marriage. You see, if your definition is right, the practicalities flow out of that. And when the practicalities are dealt with and the sin is dealt with, you go back to definition and saying, this is not a matter of inconvenience, this is a matter of rebellion and sin. And therefore you guard your marriage with all of your heart, soul, mind and strength. You invest everything to ensure it does not fall apart. Because that is one of the ways the devil attacks his church. And so young people, have these things very clear in your mind going forward. And make sure whoever you go forward with, that they also have these things very clearly in their minds. You know, I believe these things, but if your boyfriend or girlfriend doesn't, you're heading down a pathway of tremendous trouble. No unequal yokes. I say, well, I, I wouldn't marry an unbeliever. Yeah, but you can marry a believer who does not believe in God's definition of marriage, and you'll find yourself in some very, very difficult places. So we'll go forward in these things, and the will of God will look to the Lord to help us going forward. We'll come back to the companionship aspect. Uh, next Lord's Day, with the Lord's help, uh, may God be pleased to lead us and guide us in these things. Any final comments or questions before we close? We've about a minute. Sissy.
Okay, so, yeah. So, Stacey is asking the questions for those who are watching on and listening in again. Folks from Cloverdale, we're thankful for the Sunday school classes, so we're trying to uh, keep, they're, they're watching in, in backwards, you know, they've seen, they're, they're about head covering now, so they're catching up with us. Um, but Stacey is asking the question, well, common law, of course, is not relevant in every state, and again, the laws have changed, so I, I meant to that, and that's why I was very general with the concept of the danger of that, even that thinking in our minds, and so yes, it, it will change from state to state and country to country uh, in that regard, so absolutely, that's, a, that's an important observation. So what would, my, what, my, what would be my counsel to someone engaged in a common law marriage? It would indeed be to get married, and if they respond, but I've, we, entered, we entered a promise together, we promised each other, God was our witness, well, let's say that's actually, that's not the biblical definition of oath, nor is it even the cultural definition of oath, because an oath requires witnesses. And so it may be two witnesses, but it requires public testimony, okay? And there is a witnessing. So you, you know, you, you, you've got to go to a notary, a notary to get things declared as being authentic as far as a, a commitment school. And so even in all these things, there's a public declaration of it. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, so I'm not saying God's in the covenant because marriage is a creation ordinance. So this applies to unbelievers as much as to believers. Okay, so, this is, so what I'm saying is people may not consciously include God in their covenant. But God's in their covenant whether they like it or not. Because God's a witness to the binding nature of that covenant. And whether they acknowledge that or not, it makes absolutely no difference. It may be. It's, it's crazy, but it may be, there may be some validity to it in terms of there may be somebody. So the idea you have to be a, a minister or a priest conducting the, the wedding, I think that helps. It, it indicates the idea of, sorry, not the priest. <laughs> I, think, I think the idea of, a, of, an, of an ordained minister and conducting a wedding is a good thing. It's, it's bringing it about to the point this is before God. I think it's a good idea. I, but I'm going to say, so, but, but, uh, so somebody may go to a, to a legal representative with witnesses and enter an oath-bound covenant, that is in the sight of God, whether they like it or not, and it's a legal and appropriate marriage, yeah. So I can see a situation where that would be the case. Ideally, it's very much before God. We bring God into it, and it's very clearly in the sight of God. But, yeah, somebody shouldn't get out of it and say, well, I, I got married in a, we would use a term like a registry office. I got married by some register. It wasn't in church. It wasn't before God. Therefore, I'm not married. <laughs> no way. You're married. You know, you brought oaths in a public statement and public witnesses. That, that is marriage. Okay, so I think that's, we need to stop. But I think that's probably, hopefully, addresses some of the issues. Um, it's not necessary. It's not financially necessary. Because so it's what you do. Any oath may not involve a piece of paper. So it can be a public, it can be a public commitment. It may not involve paper. Sorry, I keep forgetting folks are listening in. The, the idea there, the question was there, is the marriage license 
important. Well, it's important, but it's not necessary. And so the covenant is made with or without the license. We should pray. And pray for our marriages and pray for God's blessing upon our young people. Uh, that they would see these things clearly. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word that gives us such clarity regarding these issues. Help us, O Lord, in this culture to be a witness in times of darkness and confusion. May we show Christ clearly to a lost and fallen world and give us grace in our marriages to honor thee uh, in word and action. May we honor thee in all that we would do. And so bless our young people, lead and guide them. Uh, we pray that they would even in your will, be brought into a place of marriages that really honor God. And so keep us in your ways. Bless us as we come to worship shortly. In Christ's name, amen.